you're new with us, uh, we're working our way through Luke's gospel. We only have three more chapters to go. And as we get to the end of Luke, we come to, obviously, some of the most significant events, uh, the most significant events in history, namely the crucifixion and resurrection. Chapters 22 and 3 are all about the events leading up to the crucifixion, and chapter 24 is about the resurrection. And here we're looking at um, Jesus' last meal with his disciples uh, before his death. Uh, And so let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at this important passage. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for just the... uh, the grace of gathering and singing your praise together. And we do pray right now that you would be glorified in us as I preach your word and as uh, your people hear your word. I pray that you would transform us more into the image of Jesus as we look at this text. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. The following question always makes for a good icebreaker. Describe your worst all-time meal. And describe your best all-time meal. Whenever you ask that question to a group of people, it's uh, amusing uh, sometimes as we think about uh, people's worst all-time meal. It can create a lot of laughter. And then as people describe their best all-time meal, it often can cause a lot of hunger. And we know that meals can be very powerful. And Luke, the gospel writer, loves meals. This is at least Luke's seventh meal scene in his gospel and the most powerful one. And perhaps you have some meals that take you back home. Every time I eat meatloaf, I think of my home. Uh, my mom always makes meatloaf when I, when I come home. Meatloaf and mashed potatoes and fried okra. Just the thought of it right now. Uh, and fresh tomato. Oh, man. Um, and so every time I, I eat that particular meal, I'm thinking of, man, I feel like I'm in Kentucky right now. Or when you go overseas, you can occasionally find, you know, maybe a fast food chain. And when you're homesick, you can just go there, and, uh, and it, it feels, makes you feel all warm inside, right? Uh, when Kimberly and I were adopting our children from Ukraine, we were there for 40 days, and we had eaten a variety of things, some of which we didn't find uh, very palatable. Um, and, uh, but we would make a trek sometime from a small town to Kiev, and there was uh, on the way in, in a town called Poltava, a McDonald's. And those arches were like the outstretched arms of Jesus, just saying... <laughs> Come to me, you know, and I'll give you a quarter pounder uh, and, and a French fry. And it just, it took us home as we were so homesick and so ready to, to come home that we could just taste a meal that reminded us of home. And the Lord's Supper gives us a taste of home. It reminds us that our home is not here. For here we have no lasting city, the writer of Hebrews says. We seek the city that is to come. We are made for this table. And as we take the Lord's Supper, as we look at this text today, we are reminded that one day, you and I as believers in Jesus will dine with our King. And we will never be more at home than then. Now, if you are especially weary today, I pray that Jesus in this text would would, uh, feed you with His grace as you think about what this meal points to, as you think about who this meal points to. And I pray that it would cause our hearts to sing today. Now, before we jump straight into verse 1, I think it's important just to highlight chapters 22 and 23 and just to notice how important the passion narrative is to all the gospel writers, that is, the sufferings of Jesus. Everything has been leading up to this. In fact, in the Apostles' Creed we just recited, it's very interesting, isn't it, that it goes straight from the virgin birth, born of the virgin Mary, and the next line is, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, that would be a strange biography to tell about someone. They were born, they died. 
What, what happened? Didn't, didn't some stuff happen in between? And we know there's a lot that happened in between the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus, but his whole life was headed toward this cross. He was a man born to die. Now, if you just look at the bare facts of Jesus' life, you may just wonder, why would anyone want to follow him? Why would, why would anyone say, this is the message for me? As you look, to, look at Jesus, he, it looks just, again, on the bare face of it, like he's, he's a, a victim of torture. He looks so pathetic. He looks so weak. You look at other world religious leaders like Confucius and Muhammad and Buddha. They all died in old age and in relative comfort. And yet Jesus dies young. He dies alone. He's mocked. He's spat upon. He's crying in agony. Why have you forsaken me? And yet this death changed the world. How did it change the world? It changed the world, and it's changed us, when people understand the meaning of this death. This was not an ordinary death. And here's why what we're looking at this morning is so important. Jesus reveals the meaning of his death at a meal. When it came to explaining the meaning of his death, Jesus didn't have a PowerPoint presentation. He didn't go up to a podium in front of a class. He chose a particular time and event. Verse 1, Passover. This was the time in which Jesus would explain the meaning of his death. Thousands of lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem during this time. Blood drained into the Kidron Valley. And Jesus, in this moment, would explain that his death means substitution. That Jesus would die in our place that we may receive the forgiveness of sins that our soul longs for. Now, Jesus envisions that the church would take this meal throughout its uh, history. And oftentimes, we know that familiarity can often kill astonishment. It's kind of like living by a train. When you first move there, you recognize the train and it annoys you. And then after a while, you don't notice it at all. We don't want that to happen with the Lord's Supper. And so to do that, we need to hear this story afresh. And let's let's dive into some of the words that we repeat a lot uh, Sunday by Sunday here. Now, to look at it, I want to look at it in just two parts. First of all, the setting uh, for the meal, and then secondly, the Savior at the meal. So first of all, the setting involves Passover, as I've mentioned. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, Luke tells us, which is called Passover. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 12. The two names, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, represent two different feasts, but they happen one after another, so they're often bundled together and just called Passover. Passover, if you're not familiar with this story, was the, the time in which Israel was held captive to Egypt, and they were told if they put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, God would pass over them. They would not experience his wrath. They were saved when they took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And so throughout their history, the children of Israel would take this Passover meal, and it involved a number of things, um, like the following. First, you would gather around the table with your family, maybe your extended family. Then you would recline at the table, not sitting in chairs, not like the Last Supper painting. Right? These were not Italian Renaissance people. Uh, they would recline at table. And then the father or the oldest male would begin with a blessing, and then they would have their first cup of wine, the first of four cups of wine. Then someone would bring all of the food to the table. The unleavened bread symbolized haste and danger the haste and danger of the exodus. The bitter herbs 
uh, refer to the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. They had stewed uh, fruit, which represented the bricks that they made in Egypt. And then roasted lamb, which reflected on the, the blood that was put on the doorposts. And after they would bring the food out, the youngest son would then ask the question, what does all this mean? And the father would then begin to explain the meaning and the, and the event of the Exodus. All night long, the father is teaching. Then there's a time of praise in which they would sing the Hallel Psalms. They would begin with Psalms 113 to 115. Then they would have a second cup of wine. And then the father would pronounce a blessing on the bread and pass it out. And then they would eat the meal, the bread, the herbs, the fruit. And then the real meal would begin with roasted lamb. When this meal was over, the father would uh, bless the third cup of wine, and they would then sing the second group of Hallel Psalms, 116 to 118. Then they would drink a fourth cup of wine, and the ceremony would end before midnight, and by then they're all tired. And so that's the event, that's the, the, the context in which this Passover meal would be experienced. And Jesus selects this particular time in order to explain the meaning of his death. Now, there's something else going on during this time. We read in verse 2 that there's a plot. The chief priests and the scribes wanted to put Jesus to death, but they didn't know how to do this because there was always a crowd around Jesus, and they feared the people. What they really needed in order to put Jesus to death was an insider, one that could, could help get Jesus away from the crowd. And that, of course, is what they would find in Judas. And it's very ironic, irony really abounds in the Gospel of Luke, that during the Passover, when they're celebrating the salvation of God, the religious leaders want to put to death the true Passover lamb. They want to put to death the one who came to ultimately save. Well, that then takes us to verse 3 in the betrayer with Judas. And we read from, from this, these verses, verses 3 to 6, that there is more going on than a twisted plot by wicked men we read that Satan entered into Judas. So there, there, is, there are cosmic forces at work. There's a spiritual war going on. The text doesn't tell us how this happened, only that it did happen. That Satan entered Judas, verse 3, and verse 4, he then left Jesus. You couldn't imagine a more disastrous exchange. Satan entered Judas, Satan left Jesus, or Judas left Jesus. This then gives the chief priests and officers an opportunity to finally deal with uh, Jesus. <clears throat> we read in verse 5 that money is also exchanged, and it gives the story a more, uh, an even more underhanded feel. That Jesus, uh, Judas is handing over the one that he'd been with for three years for a bit of money. And now Judas is looking for the right time to betray him. So this is the setting. It's Passover. There's a plot to take out Jesus. There is the betrayer who is under the influence of the evil one. And ultimately, Jesus would be this Passover lamb slain for sinners. It would happen at the hands of wicked men, with Judas being influenced by Satan, but all of it, we read elsewhere, is under the sovereign hand of God, working out his saving purposes for humanity. So where are they going to take this meal at? Well, notice verse 7 to 13. In the words of Hamilton, this is the room where it happens. The room where it happens. The day comes of unleavened bread, and he wants to send out his disciples uh, to find a, a place to, uh, to have the meal. They had to have the meal within the walls of the city, 
And so Jesus sends a couple of his guys to look for a man carrying a water jar. It's like Jesus had these special op agents uh, out and about working for him. He's like, you know, look for the guy with the pink pocket square. He can hook you up. Um, he, he may have prearranged this covert meeting yeah, in advance. Some have, have argued that a, a male water carrier would have been strange. This would have been a giveaway that this is the guy you're looking for. It's not like every guy would be carrying around a, a water jar. Nevertheless, they follow this guy to this specific house, and uh, they told him that the teacher needs him to get this, this room prepared, a large, furnished upper room. Uh, history tells us this is where the early church gathered. It was likely John Mark's mother-in-law's home. And amazingly, verse 13, they went and found it furnished just like Jesus had told them. Now, this is just one small way in which we see Jesus being in charge of all the events of passion. I love that phrase, just as he had told them. Everything that Jesus says is just as he tells us. And even though he's going to be betrayed, he's going to, to be uh, taken, he's going to be crucified, ultimately Jesus is in charge. He tells us in John, no one takes my life, I lay it down of my own accord. And that's very important because throughout history, a lot of scholars have tried to argue that Jesus was just sort of this charismatic teacher and the wheels fell off at the end of his life. For example, a guy who wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, Albert Schweitzer, said that Jesus was just that. He was an eschatological prophet who believed that um, the end of the world was going to come in his day, and then he said things got out of hand and he was brutally put to death. But things did not just go out of hand. Jesus is in charge of everything, willingly laying down his life, and we can trust his word. Everything he says is just as he said it would be. He says that he's going to take this Passover. <coughs> he says he's going to take it here. In the next passage we're going to look at, he says he's going to take it anew with us, and we can trust his word on that as well. So this is the setting for the meal. Now notice secondly here, the Savior at the meal, verses 14 to 23. <coughs> There's a lot of emotion in this text. It's hard for us to, to get into it, <coughs> but the language is very striking when Jesus says in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The idiom that he uses could be expressed as, I have desired with desire. I really want to take this meal with you. And he's going to offer some parting words to his disciples. And so he looks ahead to the future, verse 16, when he anticipates taking this meal anew with his disciples. What a promise. Permanently and physically, he will be united with them in the Messianic kingdom. And they would enjoy this feast. <clears throat> it's reiterated there in verse 18 as well. And then what is most striking, perhaps, verses 17 to 20, is Jesus puts himself in the center of the meal. He recasts the whole meal, puts himself in the middle, and essentially says, at the high point of Israel's calendar, and says, it's all about me. It's all about me. The whole Old Testament has been pointing to me. This whole Passover that we've been keeping for all these years is all about me. Notice how he says it in verse 17. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he points to the elements, the bread and the cup, which form the basis of the Lord's Supper. 
and he says, um, Luke says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup that uh, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant <clears throat> in my blood. Now we read these verses a lot, but it's important that we just let them land on as a fresh today. Because what Jesus says here has massive implications. He's saying that a whole new era is dawning. Something huge is happening. There's going to be a new sacrifice. It's going to bring in a new era of fulfillment. <clears throat> a covenant established by blood, but not the blood of an animal, but by the blood of God's beloved Son. It's going to usher in the new covenant, a new era. The prophet said that the law of God would be written on our hearts, that we would get new hearts, that the Spirit would reside in us, that we, we would have our sins forgiven forever. That's all going down at this meal. No one else could be saying this sort of stuff at a meal except for Jesus. That everything is changing. So we, we call it the Last Supper, and rightly so. But you might also call it the First Supper of the New Covenant. Everything is changing. And so Luke adds these words, only found in Luke, important words, do this in remembrance of Jesus. Jesus gave us a way to never forget what he has done for us through the bread and the cup. Remembering is very important for our faith. That's why we read over and over, like, do not forget the works of God. And Israel was condemned for failing to remember all that God had done for them. And what happens when we remember is that we're, we're we're, it's, it's a way in which we're bound together closely. When we together remember what Jesus has done. Even Google and Facebook understand the importance of remembering as they give you these pictures from seven years ago or five years ago. And you'll often share those pictures with friends who are also in those pictures. And you two begin to start texting about that event or that, that took place and, you, and you're, you're bound together in a, in a close way. So it is with the Lord's Supper, as we take the body and blood of Jesus together, we are reminded of not only our solidarity with Jesus, but with one another. Remember me. And so the elements. First is bread. Now when Jesus uses the word body here, he doesn't use the word for flesh in Greek. That's the word sarks. He uses the word soma, which is perhaps his whole being. Take, this is myself, he's saying. This is my body. He's given him his whole self for us without reservation. And this unleavened bread, which symbolized haste and danger of, of the Exodus, came to represent the affliction of God's people while they were in Egypt and in the wilderness. And so the presider at a Passover meal would say, this is the bread of our affliction. But Jesus takes this occasion and he says, this is the bread of my affliction. This bread, he says, represents my torn body, my torn self. This is the bread of my affliction, my suffering. He's essentially saying, I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus. I am the ultimate Moses. I'm going to bring the ultimate salvation. My death is the ultimate moment in the history of the world. All other sacrifices and salvations were pointing to me. This is my body. This is myself. That's torn for you. One time in Kenya, I met a guy on the street. He was trying to sell me something. And his name was, he said, let my people go. I was like, how you do? He said, hey, man, my name is let my people go. And I was like, come on, man. I was like, is your brother strike the rock? 
And he said, no, my brother, his son stands still. I don't think he was telling the truth. He wanted me to buy a picture off of him. Uh, but nevertheless, Jesus could say, he is the ultimate, let my people go. His death has brought us the ultimate deliverance at a price, his torn flesh. And then the wine. This cup, he says, just poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Blood, again, represents the whole life of Jesus. Matthew ties it to the forgiveness of sins. We read in the Psalms, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. This is how we have that forgiveness, through his blood. It's likely that they're lifting the third cup here. It was drank after eating the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. Can't be sure. But it's somewhere along, those way, along the way, and some have said there's probably not a fourth cup because Jesus is reserving that fourth cup when they take it anew in the kingdom. One strikingly absent element of the meal, as we read here in, in Luke's account and the other accounts, is that there's no mention of the lamb that would have been eaten. We read of the bread, we read of the cup, but this would have been a very strange Passover meal not to have a lamb when that's sort of the central part of the meal. We can't be sure about it, but it, it appears that there is no lamb present. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a little nervous when I'm at a meal and there's no protein. Some of you are cool with that, I know, but, but some of us sort of start breaking down in hives, you know, it's like, where, where's, the, where's the meat at? And what seems to be happening here is that the lamb was not on the table because the lamb was at the table. Jesus was the main course. Because an animal can't ultimately substitute for our sins. An animal cannot atone for our sins. But the lamb of God can. And he's saying, I am the lamb that all of the lambs pointed to. As John looked at him and he said, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And now we, as his people, await what is called in Revelation the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the meaning of his death. His death would be a substitutionary death. You recall the events of the Passover. Israel had to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb was their substitute. The Lamb alone was their way of escape. If they put the Lamb on the doorpost, they would not face God's judgment. And this is a picture of the gospel. Our hope of escaping God's just judgment is not in our morality, not in our resume, not in our looks. It's only our faith in a substitute. We read in Exodus chapter 12, that night in Egypt, every, in every home, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. That was it. What a picture. You're only saved by your faith in the substitute. This is the meaning of Jesus' death. Either he dies in your place on the cross or you bear that judgment. Don't do that. Trust in Jesus. He will save you. He will have you. And I'm sure that some in Israel on that night were putting the blood on the door with a little bit of doubt. A weak faith. While some were probably putting the blood on the doorpost very confidently. But both of them were saved. Because we're saved not by the strength of our faith, but because of the object of our faith. Whatever degree of faith you have, you put it in Jesus Christ. And he will save you from judgment and keep you. Well, that is what's going down here in this room at this meal. 
And not all is well, as Jesus then pivots to speak of Judas's betrayal. And he says that one who is at the table will betray him. It's interesting how he says it. The hand of him who betrays me. This hand that's sneaking around. This hand that's, that's going to take money and exchange it. A guy who is, has been with me for three years. One of you, he says, is going to betray me. And what is very interesting is that the disciples don't know who it is. That's remarkable, isn't it? Nothing about Judas's behavior had given him away yet. They began to wonder if it's one of them. Sometimes you, you see the old paintings of the Renaissance period, and they always make Judas look, you know, evil. He's got a little twisted eye or something. <laughs> but I, I don't think there was any of that in Judas. I, I think you would have looked. They're all looking at each other. In fact, they trusted Judas with the money. He was the treasurer. That's a very chilling warning to us. You can fool everybody, but Jesus is not fooled, is he? He knows what's about to go down. So he gives this word about Judas. So the setting, Passover. The Savior, it's all about him. How do we take this meal today? This meal gives us the foundation for the Lord's Supper. And it's important to notice the words, take it, we read about uh, in the Gospels. It's important that you take him, right? You know, you could have a wonderful meal, but you could still starve if you don't eat it. And Jesus has spread the best meal ever, our salvation, but you have to take him. Just the way you receive food, you take him. You receive him. Allow him to change your life. And so if you're not a Christian, that's our word to you, is that you would receive Jesus. You would find your shelter under the blood of the Lamb. You would see that Jesus is both compassionate and capable. He's able to save and mighty to save. And if you are a believer today, I want to remind you that this time to take the Lord's Supper is a, a time for constant nourishment to give us strength. And I want to offer you three ways in which we take it. First of all, we take it in dependency. That is to say that the table is a table of grace and not merit. We're here today as his people because of his blood and not our own. His performance and not our own. Our salvation depends on him. Not primarily our commitment to him, but his commitment to us. Right? And the Lord's Supper is designed to massage this grace into your heart because this is not the default mode of the human heart. The default mode of the human heart is a works-based righteousness. I'm here if I'm good enough, if I'm clean enough, if I'm whatever. No, no. We're only here because of the work of Jesus Christ. All of our salvation is depending upon Him. Not my past, but His past. And that's the food our heart needs to think about that grace. We take it with dependency. Secondly, we take it in community. Now, if you recall, as I was talking about the, how the Passover meal would happen, it was taken in families. But you notice on this night, Jesus takes the disciples out of their biological families, and he takes it with them because Jesus is forming a new community. He's forming a new family. And it's a family that's brought together by his blood. It's not about your background. It's not about your class. It's not about your race. It's not about your affinities. It's about Jesus. 
Jesus makes us one. Jesus brings us together, and we take this meal as a new community. We are a messianic community brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ and dwelt by the presence of God. Thirdly, we take it, and finally, with expectancy. We're going to take this little bit of bread and this little bit of, of juice here in just a moment. It may not look very impressive, but it's a massive reminder that our future is bright. We take it knowing that we're going to take this meal again. What we take is but the appetizer. We know the real meal is coming. So let us depend on Jesus' work alone as we come to the table. Let's enjoy it in the community that he has formed. And let's take it with expectancy, knowing that we're going to take it again with him and with his people. This table is powerful. It reminds us of home. And there's no place like home. And soon, my friends, we'll be home. We'll be home. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray together before we take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the pages of Holy Scripture and be built up in our most holy faith. Lord Jesus, we want to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we take the bread and the cup now, we're reminded of your affliction. We're reminded that you gave your whole self. You poured out your blood on our behalf that we may have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and enjoy these promises. And we give you praise and thanks. And we pray this all in your good name. Everybody said, amen.